let me tell you the conversation I had with him when we were in Boston when he came back. He kind of brought that back to me in 2003. He had his laptop open, and he looked at me, and he said, Cheryl, he says, you love what you do, don't you? I said, I absolutely do. And he says, if you ever stop, you have to quit. Wow. I looked at him, and I go, that's right. You did quit for, you know, 19 months. He relayed that again in 03, that he loved the game again, and he wanted to play still. That was really important to him. And I will never forget him telling me that. That was just quintessential Michael when he talked to me. Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'm getting first time thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 84. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome one of Chicago's sports radio pioneers, Cheryl Ray Stout. Her broadcasting experience is as varied as it is impressive. As this is an NBA history podcast, our focus is the Chicago Bulls. Among the many topics covered, Cheryl talks about two massive stories she broke in the 1990s. Both, not surprisingly, involve Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Show notes for this episode, including links to numerous topics covered, are at inallairness.com slash 84. Now, on to the show. My guest today has a storied career in radio and has covered almost every Chicago sports team imaginable for well over 30 years. She currently works for WBEZ Chicago and is an adjunct professor at Chicago's Columbia College. She also broke two of the biggest sports stories of the 1990s, which we'll get to later in this chat. Cheryl Ray Stout, thanks for joining me. No problem. How are you today? I'm going great, thank you, and uh, I can't thank you enough for for taking time out of your busy schedule covering all kinds of Chicago sports and uh, chatting with me about your history in Chicago. So thanks again. I enjoy talking about sports, so this should be fun. All right, that's fantastic. Now, you learned the nuances of sport and particularly baseball from your maternal grandfather. Um, do you mind just talking about those memories and, and how important were they in terms of fostering uh, your love of sports and what would be your future career path? Well, Adam, I come from a family of nine children and my grandfather who came from Poland, uh, he came to live with us uh, after he had retired from being a coal truck driver back in the, you know, started in the 20s, 30s, 40s. And he used to deliver coal to the two baseball stadiums, White Sox Park, Comiskey Park, and to Wrigley Field. Oh, wow. He had a big love for baseball. When you're one of nine, you try to find your way to have somebody to have a close relationship to. Baseball games would be in the afternoon when I was growing up, especially with the Cubs. So I'd I'd sit next to him, and he taught me everything about the game and told me the stories about when he used to go down to Sox Park and see Babe Ruth play. Mm. They used to give him free tickets. For me, I played sports. um, And again, it was just before in the United States, it's called Title IX, where I played uh, sports in high school and younger but once I got finished with high school, there was no avenue for me. There was no avenue as far as getting a sports scholarship 
or anything like that. So I turned myself towards theater and uh, I love sports. And I was one of the only ones that did. I went to college, got my degree, was able to work myself into radio stations internships. And then I got to a radio station that uh, was called WMAQ. At that time, it was Country Western. But they eventually became a sports entity. They carried the Bulls and they carried the White Sox. And so that began my career, getting involved with that, working on an all-sports show, one of the first in the country. And eventually, by working that, they got me my aftercard, which is a union job, to be able to go on the air. Oh, right. So, yeah, incredible sort of rise from uh, just listening and learning the game from your grandfather. And, and that's great that his links to the sport through his job uh, even linked him back to baseball. It must have been uh, a great honor for him to actually have the chance to have a great relationship with yourself in order to foster your subsequent love of the game as well. He was gone long before I finished school. Baseball in, in the United States, it's a family thing. It's very social. It, it's, you know, to fiber, and that's how I connect it. And so the first time I was able to go on a field, you know, I've been to games, but the first time I stepped on a field, I just picked up the grass, you know, and I just felt it. And I just looked up at the heavens. I'm going, I'm here, Gramps. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic to hear. Now, you mentioned how you went to college and your degree in uh, broadcasting. Um, was that also the same college where you're now doing teaching? Yes. When I was making some career choices and I had my son, uh, 20, it will be 21 years. Oh, I'm going to have a 21 year old. I don't know how I'm going to handle that. But, <laughs> but it was 20 years ago. The college asked me to come back to start teaching there. And, and, and then simultaneously, I was getting invited to go to a different radio station, which was WBEZ, which is Chicago Public Radio. It married very well. And, and I teach radio sports casting. I also taught ethics and broadcasting. That is an oxymoron. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I guess um, at the time as well that you're actually studying and working your way into the industry, probably to say the least, it wouldn't have been the smoothest of sailing for you. Since researching for our chat today, it's clear that you're one of the pioneering women in sports broadcasting. So how would you uh, describe the experiences of, of breaking into a, a largely male-dominated industry back in the, I guess, the early 1980s? It was not easy. I, I was fortunate I had management people that helped me and I had my peers in the station to help me. But when I had to go outside of the station to actually go to events and go to games, I was on my own. And there were some cases where I was not treated well. Now, there is a real positive situation was when I went to cover the White Sox, who had a manager, Tony LaRussa, who has you know, had gone on to win World Series after he left the White Sox. He physically would say, come with me. I'm going to have you see all the security guards because that was the first person you would see before you go to the locker room. So I wouldn't be hassled by them first. So he helped me that way. But there was instances where, like with the Chicago Bears, I was able to cover the games because legally they couldn't do anything about that. But when I got asked by my station to start covering the practices, which is during the week on Wednesdays and Thursdays, I went up there. I was the only woman there, and I knew that was going to be a possibility. But when they asked us to go into the locker room, now this is during the Bears championship year, 1985-86. So when I uh, went in, was going to go into that locker room, I'm just going in there with all the guys. And as I walked in, the players did things towards me that you wouldn't do to anybody. Hmm. And the PR director told me that I had to leave. And the male reporters smirked. They enjoyed that. Wow. Hmm. So I had to sit outside, and I sat outside on the floor for a while. I'm not talking about just a day or two. 
This was a couple years. Wow. Yeah, I had to sit outside. And I would have to ask for players to come to me. That's uh, incredible. When you think about it now, in 2018, I mean, there's no way that's happening. But these decades prior, to even be asked to to leave the room, I mean, that's very degrading to even uh, be suggested that you should leave and not even be part of the uh, the group of reporters. Yeah, and inside I was seething, but you can't show that because back then it would be so easy to say you couldn't handle it. I, I had to fight the battle the way I had to fight the battle, but. The good thing that happened is I asked for a player who's a quarterback, and his name was Jim Harbaugh. He was a rookie, and I said, can I talk to him? They brought him out, and Jim stood there with his arms on his hips, and he goes, why is she sitting out here? She covers the games, you know, on Sundays. Why can't she come into the locker room now? And the PR director just, he was flabbergasted because he got challenged by a player, Jim Harbaugh, who has gone on to other things. He's now the head coach of Michigan University football team. He opened the door literally and figuratively for me. Wow, that's great. I mean, it's a shame that it had to come to being a player to actually enable that to happen. That's a fantastic uh, gesture on his behalf to at least get you to be just included with everybody else. So, yeah, that's big back in the in the mid-'80s. You know, I've learned to handle things kind of with humor too. Um, there was a player when I was in the White Sox locker room and I'm, I was talking to other players after a game, and then all of a sudden he's yelling my name, Cheryl, look at me. And I turned around, and he was completely naked, <sighs> striking a pose. And I said, okay, how do I handle this? Do I? Mm. <laughs> so I left that night. I went home, and I thought about it, and I went to the store, and I came back that day, and I put a bottle of suntan lotion with a note on it <sighs> on his locker, and I said, you missed some spots. <laughs> The uh, tan lines. Yes. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. You know, for me, I, I would rather deal with humor yeah. than to get angry because if I got angry, then I was letting them get to me. Oh, uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good one. It's just a game. These are just games, and most of these people are just young boys still. They never grow up. Mm-hmm. And again, I had eight brothers and sisters, mostly sisters. So if I couldn't handle what I was dealing with, you think I could handle, you know, I I could. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's great. In 2018 then, what's your opinion now on the standing of uh, women in the media, uh, sports or otherwise, compared to back in the, the years when you were first trying to break into the industry? I think it'd be impossible to, you know, to have the same situations that I went through. The problem is, is there's you know, the women that go cover games have issues. The problem is some women and men, and I put both, players don't want us in the locker rooms. They don't like to. The problem is some people are sitting behind microphones or sitting, you know, at a desk and never going to these events. And then they get into Twitter wars. Mm-hmm. They throw things out there and it's like, look, if you can't face a player or a management person or anybody, then why sit back there behind a mic or on social media and attack people? You can't have it that way. And that's that's where men and women have fault. But as far as the actual covering games, um, they, they don't like any of us. <laughs> <laughs> it's equal dislike. <laughs> well, in terms of the ethics, social media, how do you approach that with students? I think that they should always look at what the athletes say because that's really where the information is coming from more nowadays than ever before. But you better make sure that that's a legitimate account. That's number one. Mm. Number two... If you're going to tweet something, you better make sure that something you can't be embarrassed by 
or your your employment can't be embarrassed by, or a family member. Let's say you got a mother, a father, a grandparent. You know, that's how I put it into their heads. You're like, just just think about it. Because nowadays, anything you put on social media is that it's like what they used to say in school. It's on your permanent record. It can't go away. Mm-hmm. Everything could be captured, right? Yeah, true. I mean, people are doing screenshots of the tweets, and then you know, seconds later they might be deleted, but the screenshots stay forever and they get shared around. So uh, you got to be super careful, of course. Yeah. Um, now, for the purpose of this chat today, because the podcast is all about basketball history, I primarily love to focus on the Chicago Bulls of the eighties and nineties. As I mentioned before, off air, there's so much we could chat about about your entire career covering all the different sports teams around Chicago. But the Chicago Bulls teams of the late 70s and into the early 1980s weren't overly successful. Uh, I had a look last night to check all my stats here. From 1978 through 84, they made the playoffs just once in 1981. What are your memories of the Chicago Bulls and the sporting landscape pre-Michael Jordan? Well, it, it, it was almost non-existent. In fact, if you were going to a game or covering a game at the old Chicago Stadium, and it's too bad that it doesn't exist anymore. It was one of the greatest places to ever go to a game. There was two places for the media to sit. There was a table on the floor, and then there was an upper press box. They would ask the media, please come down, sit down by the table, because it just looks like there's some people there. That's how bad it was. <laughs> I mean, it was bad. But also, during that era, just before Michael, there was a lot of issues with players with drugs. That was also part of the culture of, of the NBA in the late 70s and, and the 80s until, of course, Magic Johnson and, and Larry Bird took it to different heights. So the drug era was around there. But what happened to them was the biggest luck of all was the fact that when they were able to, in 1984, two teams skipped on Michael Jordan. One was Houston going for Akeem Olajuwon, and two was Portland. And they took Sam Bowie. Michael Jordan goes number three, and that changed everything. Do you recall when Jordan first appeared on your radar? Oh, absolutely. I loved college basketball because before the Bulls had Michael and stuff, like college basketball was really big in Chicago. DePaul basketball was more important, more important than the Chicago Bulls. They were a number one team in the nation quite often. Uh, they went, went to the final four in 1979. So the, the, the spotlight was on college basketball. Loyola had a, a nice run in 85. Uh, Northern Illinois had some good times. Bradley had good times with, uh, Dick Versace. So college basketball was big. And so for me, I was also working, I did some ghostwriting with, uh, Dick Vitale, who's a very well known ESPN, um, announcer. Yeah. And I used to do work for him, background work with Chicago, uh, college players. So I was really, really, I just adored Michael from North Carolina. In fact, I had saved, because I was getting a Sports Illustrated uh, subscription, every time he was on the cover, I saved those. Oh, right. Nobody else. (laughs) I love it. That's great. And he appeared on that cover, I think, more than any athlete in history. I think that's still correct. But, But he would never appear on it again after what happened to him with baseball. No, that's right. The bag at Michael. He refused. Yep. He never forgot that. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, now, you mentioned a little while ago about WMAQ, and if I have my numbers right, it was the 1985-86 season when they obtained the rights to broadcast the Bulls games on radio. Yes. After a, a 3-0 and start, which was fantastic, <laughs> uh, Chicago's season unfortunately came to a crashing halt. I'm pretty sure you know where I'm heading here. Yes. When uh, Michael Jordan broke his foot in a game at Golden State on October 29 of 1985, 
Do you remember the game or even just the subsequent fallout about the diagnosis or misdiagnosis, whether it was or wasn't broken in terms of his foot and, and just how he missed all but 18 regular season games? Yeah, you know, it was one of those things because, um, you know, Michael thought it was not as bad as it was, but the team was being very, very and, – and remember, at that time, too, in 85, they no longer had Rod Thorne as their general manager. They had Jerry Krause, and they also had accumulate other people as, as far as their staff, as far as their medical people. Uh, when Michael hurt his foot <laughs> – when you work at the station and finally got the rights to the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan breaking his foot was huge. Give you a little bit of background. What happens when you carry a team? Um, you, you, you carry the rights to the team and we're doing a sports talk show. And so we were like starting to do the show from the stadium. And also they would give you tickets to give away, you know, for, for various things. So when, before Michael broke his foot, because they knew he was, you know, pretty important becoming, coming off of being a rookie of the year. They would give you a couple of tickets per game, but they say, well, you can't have tickets for the 76ers. You can't have tickets for the Lakers. You can't, you know. So, okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. So after Michael broke his foot, guess what? I could get tickets for any game, <laughs> anytime. Uh, it was kind of an interesting, but the person I felt the most for was Stan Albeck. It was his first year as their head coach. He had big success at San Antonio. And Michael would have really blossomed to understand. I really believe that. He was, he was a tremendous coach. But they struggled. It was just a mishmash of, of players. Dave Corzine was great to deal with because he was always a blast. I was going to ask you about Dave because he's one of my absolute favorite players. And I'm wearing a T-shirt at the moment. One of my best mates got made up for me. It's the Bulls number 40 with Corzine on the back. So there you go. One of my favorites. He lives in my neighborhood. Sometimes I run into him. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny because at where I live in the suburb of Chicago, one time I'm just driving down the street and I forgot he lived here. I'm going, that guy looks awfully familiar. <laughs> <laughs> he was always great to me when I, when I covered him, but, uh, cause it, everyone thought with Michael Jordan, this team was really going to be on the rise. And here's an interesting story that a lot of people don't realize. You know, Michael was kind of frustrated by everything that was going on. So in February of 86, Michael Jordan uh, was going to go home to North Carolina. He was in Chicago. He was going to go home to North Carolina. Our radio station was doing an appearance at the Chicago Auto Show. That's a real big deal in Chicago. It's in a place down in Chicago, downtown Chicago. The thing was is Michael Jordan had a relationship with uh, Chevrolet. So our station said, hey, you know, you're in the area. You're still, you're still around. Can you come by our little exhibit that we have? Now, I was there. And I said, hey, do you guys realize this is Michael Jordan's birthday's tomorrow? They go, how do you know? I go, it's my birthday too. <laughs> I plan to ask you about that because uh, <laughs> that's something that you share with Jordan that not many people can claim uh, they got the same birthday. Yeah, and I always said it was my first, so, you know. <laughs> uh, so what happened was Michael agreed to do it, and we had just had a table. There was just a few of us. There was myself, the, uh, somebody from the marketing department. And we had a big basketball cake made, and Michael's there. And they announced on the PA that Michael Jordan is there. Now, this is before we really knew his impact. And I think before he really knew his impact, every person that was in that building came to our booth. <laughs> we had no security. Oh, wow. It was insane. Was this a, an unscheduled appearance? An unscheduled appearance, and they just announced on the PA that Michael was going to be there. <laughs> It'd be like the Beatles all of a sudden had just visited. That's what it was like, and that's what the whole thing about when I traveled with my you hit it exactly. It was like being with the Beatles. And I, I just looked, I'm going, holy. <laughs> <laughs> I found a great photo online, actually, which I assume must be from the same period of time. 
the photo of Jordan next to a Chevrolet. Yes. You can make out that he signed it to Cheryl. Yeah. Uh, then it's Michael Jordan. That happened at the same time when he was at that booth or was that another time? No, I just asked him, hey, while you're here, can you say this for me? <laughs> uh, I love it. I'll include that photo in the show notes to this episode on the blog post, if that's okay. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. But, you know, the thing with Michael and that whole era, when Michael was coming back, he was on a, a minutes limit, how many minutes he can play. And that really frustrated poor Stan Albeck was like, you know, Mark File was the was a trainer and he had to keep track of it. And he couldn't go over. I think it was 20 minutes was the limit. It was it was something very small. And Michael was very frustrated by that. And then they kind of let him, you know, when, when they went into the postseason, when they played oh, one of the greatest games he ever had was against the Boston Celtics in the overtimes. Yeah, overtimes, exactly. Plural. <laughs> Did you go to Boston? No, I didn't go to Boston. I was back at the station. Uh-huh. I was listening to the station because one of my jobs at that time was also to pull highlights and everything. And Jim Durham was the announcer, the late Jim Durham Hall of Famer. And I'll never forget, you know, Michael had just come back. He hadn't played much in his career. He played his, his rookie year and he, you know, only played so many games regular season. Michael hits the 63rd point and Jim Durham goes and says, I don't care if he's only played a year and some change. This is one of the greatest players to ever play. Fantastic stuff. This is obviously pre-internet by a good 10 plus years. Yeah. When Jordan explodes for 63 points, all-time playoff record, etc., um, the Bulls end up getting swept in Game 3. But what did the Chicagoans make of that performance and just the talk around the city in, in those subsequent few days? There was a strong belief that Michael, we, we knew he was great in his rookie year, but we knew that he was even greater with, by doing that because they didn't beat the Watson Celtics, but because he scored against Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Dennis Johnson, he scored against the eventual champions. And here's the thing, because like I was telling you, like, uh, I had to pull highlights because back then you didn't have what you have now. I got calls from stations all over the country asking for that call. Mm. He became that big nationally, not just Chicago locally. Great to hear those stories. Thanks very much for opening up and sharing them. Uh, now you mentioned you were doing a show of some sorts from Chicago Stadium at WMAQ. I also read that you conducted some pre and post game interviews with players, uh, live from the locker room. Oh yeah. What was that experience like? And, and did you actually ever have an opportunity to listen back to your work in the years that followed? I never like listened to myself. <laughs> you don't like to hear yourself. <laughs> but you know what? Um, I feel very blessed, very fortunate to be able to do what I did, but I would go in the locker room with the Bulls and they, they were really terrific to me. They, they were fine. And, and what I would always do is Michael was always going to be there. I would go the other way and I would talk to the other players and then I'd go to Michael. Or if I wanted to meet Michael right away, I'd go to Michael. And Michael always gave me as much time as I wanted. And it was funny because I would always know what his catchphrase, you say, quite naturally, he'd start <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd start talking. And to understand what the Chicago Stadium was like, we're talking about, it was called the old barn because it was big, but it was small. Really, when you look at the locker rooms were in a basement. And so the Bulls locker room was very, very small. And Michael never talked outside the locker room. You know, everyone wanted him to go to a, you know, like a podium. No, he did everything from the locker room. And so there'd be waves of people. You're talking about masses of people that used to cover him from Europe, all, you know, all over Asia. They'd come to cover him. And next to him always had to be the rookie. Because people would be standing on the chair of, in the locker room next to him. <laughs> <laughs> so no one wanted to be next to his locker, I guess. Nobody did. Yeah. 
And so I would talk to Charles Oakley when he was there or Horace Grant. And Bill Cartwright was one of my favorite people to talk to. And it was so congested. One time, one of the players was throwing a brush um, thrown to Charles Oakley, and I got hit in the head. <laughs> How did the players <laughs> react to that? Well, I almost passed out because it was the same area I had a bad concussion, you know, and I kind of like blacked out a little bit. Oh, wow. It's funny now. In hindsight, it's funny, but at the time, I guess it hurt and it wouldn't have been funny. <laughs> yeah, I was seeing stars a little bit and they caught me and, and I go, yeah, I know I'm short, but I can't be that short. <laughs> I'm still kidding in that. <laughs> it was condensed, but it was kind of cool because, you know, there was no place for them to escape, so they were available to talk. I'm glad you mentioned Charles Oakley and, and some of those other players as well, but I think Oakley's career in Chicago is somehow underrated. He he did some great things there for the years he was with the Bulls before going to the Knicks. Um, my great mate Aaron and myself were going through the 1987 NBA season at the moment in a series that I'm releasing uh, through the podcast feed here, and Oakley just has routinely great games where he has 15, 20 points, 25 points, then he gets his 17, 18, 22 rebounds. What was it like to sort of cover a, a young Charles Oakley prior to him becoming perhaps more well-known when he became a member of the Knicks that most people remember him as? He was raw, but there was something about him. You, you, you know, you're talking about coming from a small college. Mm, Virginia Union. Yeah, very, very small college. A lot of his coaching was done by Doug Collins. And the thing was, he couldn't jump. So that's why, I mean, that's why to see all those numbers were rebounding. I mean, that was pure strength. Mm. And Michael took him underneath his wing. In fact, when Michael was going to that All-Star game for that year um, and Charles' first year, he took him with him. And he says, I want you to experience this so you know this is what you should try to strive for. Michael always knew the players that he needed to have around him. And Charles Oakley was one of them. And he loved him. Uh, Jerry Krause, he was very heartbroken that he traded him because, you know, that was his first draft pick. But they got Bill Cartwright in exchange, and that was an important piece of the puzzle to, to going forward. But Charles Oakley was one of those guys that would stand at the baseline, and instead of, you know, like inbounding it nearest to the nearest guy, no, 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 no. It would go down court <laughs> like he was playing a baseball game. Could definitely throw some great passes. Yeah. What I was going to ask, you mentioned about Jordan and uh, his availability to the media. What may surprise some listeners, and you've just confirmed this even further, is just how accommodating and um, accessible he was in the 1980s and even into the early 1990s. Later, I do plan to ask you about one of the last conversations that you had with Jordan, the player, but I read that you were sometimes the only media member who was present at the Bulls training camp sessions. Do you mind just talking a little bit about some of the memories from those times where you had an opportunity to chat one-on-one to Jordan and some of the other players? Those days, there used to be practices uh, during the day, but but they would always have night practices. And, and a lot of times, you know, media didn't want to stick around. I'd still go, you know, and I'd go and I'd sit there. And that was an opportunity to go without your mic and just sit and talk. And you could have off, you know, off the record conversations. You know, it helps you to get insight with them about maybe a situation, about a book that was being written, and to get that feedback. And and then also, I always believe as a reporter, I'm not going to be your friend, but I want to understand you, and I want you to understand what I'm doing, so we could be in a cohesive relationship that way, reporter and and player. I treasure that because um, being able to be able to talk to him. It was very respectful. I never felt that, that I was anything but a, you know, um, a person that he can talk to and that, that I could relate what he's saying to my listeners. And I appreciate that. 
do you pinch yourself sometimes when you think about how you're involved with not only, I mean, obviously wider across the Chicago sports spectrum, but just with the Bulls and how they were growing up from being the baby Bulls and trying to find a team to fit around Jordan to then when the team came together as a, a cohesive unit to then achieve all the success they did in the 1990s. Does that sometimes surprise you that you were involved so heavily over that entire period of time? It does, you know, there, there's times when you, you know, when you think about it and you go, wow, did I, was I really, was I, yeah, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I did experience this. But, you know, because of what I was doing at the times I was doing it, you know, I'd sit on the floor, the table underneath the basket. And there were times when I'd watch a game. One time I watched a game just to watch Michael's feet the whole game. So, you know, to, just to, to really, really absorb something different about the game, something different about Michael. And being able to have that opportunity. And so I never, ever felt like this was a job. I felt like this was really an experience. You know, when I hear people, media people complain, ah, this and I'm going, are you kidding me? I worked in a factory to put myself through college. I worked as a waitress to, you know, to be able to go to school. I don't take anything for granted. And so I look at those times with fondness and just feeling it was incredible. Incredible memories, and uh, again, I appreciate you sharing them. Uh, just for a second, do you mind if I just close my windows? The guy outside just started his lawnmower. <laughs> no problem. Terrible timing. Oh, yeah, no worries, no worries. <laughs> Apologies for that. No worries, no worries. I'm thinking of Luke Longley when I say no worries. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Luke, he's actually uh, been kind enough to appear on the podcast twice. I don't know how I convinced him that second time. But what did you make of having an Australian – I mean – there were international uh, flavor throughout the Bulls. So you had Tony Kukoc, Bill Wennington, and then uh, Luke Longley. What was it like to be around those guys with the different international backgrounds, particularly uh, during that second title run? To me, it was it was a breath of fresh air. You know, the language was fun. Uh, the, the subjects you could talk about. Bill Wennington could talk about hockey with him. Mm. Luke would talk about surfing, and you know, we would talk t- talk about what how was growing up in Australia. I love hearing about different cultures. Tony Kukoc who is around the team again, and he went through a difficult period of trying to, you know, come here during when Michael wasn't here, and, you know, there was him and Scottie Pippen, you know, on different sides. I felt sorry for him because what people don't realize in the media, something that bothers me, is that when you have a player that's not used to speaking the native language that we have, and they're doing their best because you have to break it down. When they're sitting there after a game, and for him, it was Croatian, and you're speaking English to him. He's got to translate in his head to speak it back to you, what you expect to hear. And media would be like, you know, smirking, ah, oh, you know, it takes too long. Do you realize that, you know, he's doing us a favor to speak our native language, and for him, it's not easy. And that's something that always bothered me, how media never understood that Tony was just trying to do the best he can to talk to us. And, and of course, you know, Scotty had his anger towards him being even on the team so that added to the frustration yeah that's true and i guess uh there's uh stories about jordan and pippen uh clamping down on defense against uh coaching the 1992 olympics as well so yeah that does date back quite a while you mentioned how you had uh one of the great seats in the house when you were looking at uh jordan's feet at a particular game as an observer I also read that you had one of the best seats in the house at Cleveland in 1989, <laughs> Game 5 against the Cavs, where Jordan hit the shot. Do you mind just describing the atmosphere in the building and, and your memories of that amazing finish? Oh, you know, there was a couple of places that we went with the Bulls. You knew the fans just hated him. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was New York, yeah. 
it was mostly Detroit, and it definitely was Cleveland. <laughs> Before the game, the, the, oh my gosh, the, the the vitriol that would go on, you know, about Jordan's. But I sat right by Jim Durham and Red Kerr. Oh man, that's where I was sitting when that shot was made. Unbelievable! It was like shutting up. Several thousand people with just one swoosh. <laughs> uh, and that's another iconic call from Jim Durham as well. The game was nationally televised on um, CBS. I think it was Dick Stockton and Hubie Brown. But the Chicago radio call uh, is absolutely everything <laughs> when it comes to that shot. That's why Jim Durham was a treasure to us. And it was too bad that there was contract negotiations that went bad for him later on. And that was unfortunate. But... He just said things in such a short order, but it was so exciting, you know. And then you got John Kerr. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was good at that. Yes. He played the role of the fan behind the microphone, I guess you could say. Uh, he was just fantastic. We all love John Kerr. I mean, he was the first Bulls head coach. He took a team, a first expansion team to go to playoffs before the uh, Golden Knights just did with uh, with hockey. What he was able to do then I mean, you were talking about the guy that was from Chicago, you know, went to Tilden High School, you know, was able to play in the NBA, was, you know. There's something about that era, too, that, um, you know, what people didn't realize before they came to MAQ Radio, they were at a, a smaller station, WIND, and, and Jim Durham and Red Kerr would have to book their own flights. Oh, wow. Carry their own equipment. <laughs> And keep their fingers crossed that there was an engineer on the other end. They were basically um, setting themselves up city to city as far as getting set up for their broadcast. Yes. Yes. And when they came to MAQ Radio, MAQ Radio was a unionized shop and they had an engineer would travel with them and the station handled all their arrangements until uh, the Bulls got the private plane and then they would join them. But that, that's a little nugget that people don't realize. Yeah, I had no idea about that and I consider myself a pretty big fan of that, that era. So that's great to hear. Thanks again for sharing. Uh, yeah, Johnny Recure, aside from his great reactions, great uh, color man as well and had a fantastic sense of humor too. Um, now, you covered all six of the Bulls championships. I know it's a, probably an unfair question. Do you have a favorite season? I loved the first championship, but I also loved the fourth one because of the, the fact that they established that record. But the first championship was really special because there wasn't as many media around. We were in L.A. What was a really neat experience, of course, they, they put us, the Chicago media, in the last row, the last row of the stadium. Up in the nosebleeds. <laughs> yeah. At the forum. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That's not very hospitable. <laughs> you know, that happens. We went to the locker room, and, and back then, they brought the trophy into the locker room. When I went in there, and, and again, cause, because I was involved with the broadcast and stuff like that, and, and, and uh, the players all knew me, and I wasn't expecting this. I was going from talking to a couple of players, and I had a bottle of champagne poured on my head completely by <laughs> these three people. Horace Grant... <laughs> Bill Cartwright, and Scott Williams. <laughs> I had three bottles of champagne poured on my head. Oh, wow. That's a great memory. Well, at, at the time, you're probably you're struggling to breathe, but that's probably a great memory to, to be involved in the celebrations. Well, and, and, you know, I was trying to do my job, and everything was really neat. And where Michael was holding the trophy, James was sitting there, and, and Juanita was sitting there. One of the equipment men that I, I truly adore, Joe Lee, goes and says, he got me up behind Michael. Some of the pictures don't have me, but there's some pictures with me right behind Michael to talk to Michael. Oh, wow. While he was holding that trophy. Then the other thing that happened, 
I wanted to talk to uh, a player, Horace Grant. It started to get a little crowded because some of the um, the other meters came in there. I ended up going in the bathroom, and I'm talking to him in the bathroom. <laughs> and all of a sudden, all the players are in there and the crew from Disney because they wanted to shoot the commercial. Oh, they're way gone to Disneyland, yeah. Right. So... <laughs> So they're all in there, except I didn't see John Paxson. And they're all getting, you know, lined up and, and Disney's trying to do this. And, and I'm shouting, John Paxson's not here and John Paxson's not here. <laughs> so Michael gets up and goes, where's John? And the Disney people are looking at me. I mean, if nice could come out of people's eyes. <laughs> you would have been on life support? <laughs> I would have been dead. I'd be dead. <laughs> oh, that is so good. So they found Pax in the end, I hope. They got Paxson in there, and uh, you know Disney got their little clip, and uh, I slinked out of there knowing that somebody was unhappy. The games are great, but it's those type of atmospheres that you can't recreate. You have those memories, and it was really, really special. Absolutely tremendous. Um, now, you were involved as well with, uh, and also won a broadcasting award um, for your part in the championship rallies, or a championship rally at Chicago's Grant Park. What are the details behind that, Cheryl? Well, you know, it was interesting because at the time I was working with, uh, the, they had the news people, myself, and another reporter, uh, sports reporter who was out in the crowd who started panicking, which was really interesting. The Grant Park is a huge, huge park in Chicago. If you want to see pictures like when um, President Obama won the presidency, that's where they held, you know, his big uh, speech. It's a huge park. So they had the big stage. And they had the media further back of it. That place just filled up like you'd never, ever seen it. And the crowd, I mean, they, the people were there for hours and hours and hours. And because I knew the team, I had to talk for like six and a half hours. <laughs> you know? I was like, oh, my God. I mean, I could do it, but it was like, oh, thank God I, I knew what I was talking about. But it, it was one of those things where it was just exciting, you know, to, to watch this and, and to watch people enjoy themselves. And, and just the one thing, Adam, about championships, especially in a city like Chicago, where things can get tough sometimes, championships don't just end the day they win the championship. It just kind of carries through for weeks and weeks and weeks. And it's just a good feeling that you have. And that's what the, the, the rally was like. People we're doing things without their clothes on. And, you know, <laughs> it was interesting. So you acting as a host? Yeah, I was. I was a host uh, uh, for our radio station. They had the, you know, they had all the players come up there and do speeches and stuff like that, and, and we would bring them in and out, you know, on the air. We were separate, but that was part of my job. Yeah. So how did you go juggling all the? I guess you've got somebody in your ear who's feeding you information about what's going to be happening and what's coming up next. No, no, you didn't. So how did it sort of unfold? There's somebody there, but they don't know what's going on because, you know, <laughs> you have what's going on stage, what's going back to the station. You, you know, you just you just go with it and, you know, you, you try not to make too many mistakes. It, it's it's a very celebratory uh, atmosphere. So, it, you know, nobody hears all your mistakes. <laughs> well, that's, um yeah, just fascinating to hear the behind the scenes here. Now, uh, I mentioned this in our introduction. There are two massive sports stories that you broke in the 1990s. The first of which was Jordan's decision to play baseball, which uh, came to be a few months after his October uh, 1993 retirement. October 4th. 
There you go. Uh, <laughs> your relationship with MJ, uh, as we've established in this conversation, which also dated back to a conversation that you had with him uh, maybe 12 to 18 months prior, mm-hmm. uh, was a key factor in helping you get a handle on what was to actually unfold. Now, a long preamble, but in as much detail as you're willing to offer, can you please talk us through um, the behind-the-scenes details that led to you breaking this huge story? Well, there's a couple of things that was going on. First off, as you mentioned, when we used to go into the locker room with Michael before games, which I, I really treasured, we would have conversations. I would let him know if I was rolling on and just you know going on and on. So it was about 12, 13 months before he uh, announced to, to retire. He went to Comiskey Park and, and he threw batting practice and stuff like that and played in the outfield and stuff. And we talked about baseball. And he said to me, because, you know, you really love baseball. And I, and I explained, yeah, you know, I really did. I played it, you know, my, my grandfather, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So we had a long conversation about it. And he said to me, he says, sure, you know what? When, when I finished with basketball, I want to play baseball. I go, what? And he said, that was my first sport. That was a sport my dad loved, and I loved playing it. And I'm going, but, Michael, by the time you retire, again, you know, we didn't know what was going to happen after that, you know. You're going to be in your 40s, maybe. You're going to be in your late 30s. You're going to, you mean, you're going to go on the buses? You're going to go in the minor leagues? And he looked at me seriously. He goes, that's what I really want to do. So I had that in the back of my mind, you know, and I had recorded it too. So I, I knew it was there. You forget about it. So you fast forward. He retires months after his father was murdered, mm. which what people don't remember about that, that year, that last year, it was the only year that Michael Jordan's dad, James, traveled with Michael on the road during the regular season. Their relationship was much closer than people even realized. They were very, very close. So when Michael announced that he was retiring October 4th, the reason why I know that because of my mother's birthday, that's the only reason why I remember it. <laughs> it's a good way to remember it. I'm one of those people, I have to always have something you know, to correlate to remember things. Absolutely. So when Michael announced that his retirement on October 4th, you know, everyone thought he was done. A couple weeks later, I'm at a Bulls game, and a person that I know that was connected to both the White Sox and the Bulls said to me, Cheryl, Michael's going to try to play baseball this year. And I didn't poo-poo it because of that conversation I had with him a year plus before. Mm. So I, I got on the trail, and I started making the calls. And I told my boss at the time, Jim Moldowski was my sports director. I, at that time, I was at AM 1000, WMVP, no, sports station. And I said, Jim, I said, I got this story. I think it's good, but I need time to put it together. It's one of those things, because you're, you're talking Michael Jordan. You're talking about something that no one's going to believe unless you have some facts behind you. Mm. So, you know, I had to figure some things out. And I called my friend that works for the White Sox in security. And I called her up and I said, hey, what time does Michael get there? <laughs> like as a uh, as a leading question of sorts. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, oh, about 10 o'clock. And then she says, oh, you didn't know that. I go, yeah, I know. <laughs> oh, wow. Well played, though. That's a, I mean, that's a, a great way to approach it. I never used her name. I never told, you know, no one knows who it was. All my sources that asked me not to tell, I didn't tell. And then I pecked away at the story and I called Herm Schneider, the White Sox trainer, because you had to start figuring out, okay, what would Michael have to do in order to get ready to play baseball in spring? Mm. 
well, he would have to get his his body in shape because it's a different body type that you need to have to play baseball. So I talked to him, and he goes, yep, he's here. He's working out with us. And he wouldn't be really specific, but he was like, how did you know about this? And I'm like, you know, we're going back and forth. He confirmed that he was there. Then my next step was uh, to talk to the general manager, Ron Schuler. I went to a <laughs> – they were having a, a party for some kids. <laughs> and I went there, and I took him aside. I said, Ron – can you tell me what's going on with Michael? He goes, oh, I heard you're, you know, you're asking questions. <laughs> he goes, yes, he's here. I don't know what's going on yet. Well, that was a pretty good confirmation right there to have the general manager say that he's working out with the White Sox right now. Yeah, that's incredible, isn't it? It was pretty cool. And then, and I got other people to confirm things that was going on. Then I had two more phone calls I wanted to make. One was to Jerry Reinsdorf the owner of the Bulls and the White Sox, because that's why I knew that it would be the White Sox because they owned both teams. Yeah. And the other one would have been Michael to contact him. So I was going to make the call, and, and unfortunately there was a death in his family, so I I respectfully did not make that phone call. I held back. I figured I'd call in a couple of days. I'll, I could hold the story because no one still didn't know what was going on. Mm. But what happened was that it was on a Thursday, on a Friday, I get a phone call from my boss saying, Somebody on the other radio station, all sports radio station, is saying they saw Michael Jordan go into Comiskey Park. And the question was, why would Michael do that? And they respond, oh, he's probably just having lunch with Jerry. So my boss said, you know what? You've got people on the record. You have your sources. You could go with the story. So that's why I did I did that. And the host that I was dealing with on our own air, who also works for the Sun-Times, who was a real jerk, says, I don't believe it. <laughs> so... Is this on air? Yeah. And you learn to deal with that because, again, there's times when people are just being jerks and that's the way it was. But I did have full support from my boss. And then the local TV station here, Tim Weigel was the sportscaster. He backed me up on the air. He says, look, we know Cheryl, blah, blah, blah. And, and so then it became a big story after that. And then one of the local papers stole my quotes and rewrote my story. Without any crediting to you? No attribution. Oh. Yeah, well, you know. <sighs> yeah. My source calls me back and says, the one that originally gave me it, he goes, I'm not happy with what happened to you. Michael Jordan's working out at IIT with Mike Huff. You know, blah, blah, blah. Give me all the details. <laughs> I go, thank you. Yeah, it's good to have those sort of sources uh, on your side. Yes, it worked. Then it got crazy. Then it got really crazy. Yeah, this is absolutely fascinating and uh, I was unaware of any of this. And the thing that's really hard to try and process is that we sort of know the narrative that's followed since and all the stories that have been told and the misconceptions. But as this is happening, I guess you've got to try and know when you are going to pull the trigger on the news or how long you can hold off before you're absolutely certain. So there's so many things that play into that news breaking and all this pre-internet. You didn't have social media to worry about. Exactly. You didn't have people with cameras, so you actually had time to work stories back then. Now you don't have time. Well, now it would be almost impossible to do. Absolutely. You couldn't hide a story of that magnitude with social media. There's just too many people with phones these days that can take photos, record stuff. Um, how did you go about developing your sources and, and not uh, just to, to be able to use them in key moments like this and, and have them on your side, but I assume over a long career that still continues, you must develop all kinds of relationships with people that are uh, important. The people you meet along the way, you mightn't even realize that years later they could actually end up helping you get uh, some bit of information. Well, one of the things that I learned being a woman is that everybody's important. It may sound weird, but 
like when I would have to call, because back then, again, you have to make phone calls to call people. With the guys I was working with at the time, they decided to, to pull something on me. They go, sure, I'll call this coach up, uh, you know, try to get him to come on the air with us. It was new edit, and I'm going, well, okay, what was that all about? I, I called up, and the woman starts screaming at me because her husband was a philanderer, and she thought I was one of his girlfriends. What, were they trying to set you up or something? Yes, they were trying to set me up. They were trying to, you know, to. So I, I learned from that. And, and what I did learn was that I have to be very prepared. So when I called up a player or a manager or a coach and I, I'm calling their home because I was calling the home, I knew what the wife's name was. Many, many times I would have conversations with the wife if the husband wasn't there because, again, those cell phones back then. And sometimes they helped me with stories. All right. And then I learned that. I know the security guards at the United Center. I know the Andy Frayne ushers around me at the ballparks. Everybody has a story to tell or just want to be acknowledged. And sometimes they know things that can help you. And I don't abuse them or use them, but there are times when they'll tell me things. And so they'll put me on the trail. And it's just a matter of just being kind and considerate. That sounds simple, but... I find that that works and being genuine about it. Um, I, I was just talking to a young man that, that works for the Cubs yesterday. And he says, yeah, people just walk by me like I don't exist. I always have them join me for lunch. I'm going, that's their fault. That's, you know, that's, that's their shortcomings because I think everybody has a purpose and everyone is important. That answers my question beautifully. That's just so, so fascinating, the information there behind that first story. We're having this chat today thanks mostly to a tweet that I saw of yours that you published on March 19 of this year. Uh, it was appropriately the 23rd anniversary of Michael Jordan's return to the NBA back in 1995. Um, this was a huge story, of course, but th again, there are some misconceptions and revisionist history about how it all went down. So if you don't mind, and I thank you so much for your time already, um, can you please just walk us through your involvement in breaking that news that Jordan was done with baseball and would actually be returning to play with the Bulls. Well, the thing was when Michael, of course, you know, he, he went to the Birmingham Barons minor league team and he didn't have success there. Although I was at spring training with him and I, it was really fun to talk to him about it. And I was the only one there when he was working out, which was kind of interesting that people were too lazy to go there. Mm. So, you know, Michael and I had this report and then what happened was there was a, a strike going on with baseball. And what they do is they separate the minor league players from the major league players in camp. And they wanted Michael to cross the line uh, with what was going on. And, and, and he was not happy. Well, I had a source down in Florida that had called me up and said, Cheryl, Michael's, he's walking out of camp here. And I went, okay. So I, I knew something was cooking. Then I was at what's called the Berto Center. That was a practice facility that they used to have. Mm-hmm. There was a closed curtain that Phil put in because wanted to make sure we couldn't watch practice. I used to watch the practice at the other place. They had the multiplex. The players used to crink the, the shade for me so I could watch it. <laughs> but there was only a few media people there. There was five of us, I believe, that was there that day. All the other regular beat reporters had jumped the beat because it wasn't interesting anymore. They weren't winning championships like they were. Mm. I was still there. But what I heard on the other side was what I used to hear when Michael played. <laughs> and what was that? What did you hear? It, it has a, a loudness that you can't compare it to. 
and it had a sound that only if you've heard it before, you knew it was him. <laughs> so I went, hmm. Knowing what that he had left camp, knowing that sound, and then the third thing was a player's friend that I knew. We were in contact, and he goes, Mike was in there. And I'm going, okay. I said, that cements it for me. <laughs> the source was really a really good source. I'm, I'm like, okay, this is cool. Michael's here. Again, I'm not saying anything to anybody. Back then, again, no cell phones. I had a beeper, and I, and I had a landline, okay? That's how long ago. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember those years too, sadly. I'm, I'm loving this, so thanks so much for sharing. We walk into the practice area, and it was Phil with us reporters. Then the reporters left, and Phil's going up the steps, and I'm away from the reporters. I go, Phil, Michael here? <laughs> And he turns and he gives me a look. I can imagine the look of Phil that he may give in that scenario, given his uh, facial expressions do say a lot. You mean the sneer? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. So I got that look. And he goes, yeah. <laughs> he said he was there. And then I asked a player if he was there, you know, and he said, yeah, he was here. We're not sure. I'm going, oh, this is great. That was a great, you know, like, yeah, he's, he's here. <laughs> so since I, I got them to tell me, you know, I, I knew what I was hearing, but I wanted somebody that was inside to confirm my information. Yeah. So I called up the station. I said, look, Michael is here. He's practiced with the team. I can't give anything else. That was big enough as it was. I'm on the air live, Adam. My beeper goes off and I just, you know, I, just, I throw it aside. I go, I, you know, I, I don't want to lose my concentration. I'm doing the story going well, blah, blah, blah. I get off the phone several minutes later. I look at my beeper. I'm going, uh-oh. So I call back and it was my source from the player's friend. He goes, where were you? I'm going, I was on the air live. He goes, I had Michael right here. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate timing to say the least. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. So I did the story, and until he did the I'm back thing, the uh, Birdo Center was filled with reporters waiting for it. We all knew he was there. We didn't know when he was coming back, uh, what day he was going to come back until that fax. So there were several days. This was several days before that fax. So we'd be sitting at that damn facility waiting for that. And I was another one time, and Will Perdue comes and he gives me a poem that he wrote about Michael coming back. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember anything from that poem? I can't remember the poem. I know I have have it somewhere. That's funny. I can only imagine it would have been an absolute sideshow and a circus, I guess. I did ask Luke Longley briefly about it in one of the chats that we had, and and he actually had me believe at one stage that uh, that Jordan was sleeping at the Birdo Centre overnight and wouldn't leave the venue so that people could find out the story. But I actually believed it, and of course he was just having me on. But <laughs> I assume based on the fact that your source contacted you on the beeper and, and then he had Jordan with him, Michael was willing to chat with you at the time to confirm this? Yes. To, to let you know, um, going back to the baseball story, the, when we were at the IIT covering that, Michael was sitting down. There was a press conference that was being called there for a, a Topps baseball card that had Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and Reggie Jackson on it. It was after one of his practices, and I go over to put my recorder there. He goes, how you doing, Cheryl? I go, I'm fine. You're keeping me busy. And he just smiled, <laughs> and I go, are you okay? He goes, I'm fine with everything you've done. Oh, wow. And then when I was at spring training with him, he expressed to me when we were, we we're walking, uh, he says, I have somebody to keep track of everything that's written and, and spoken about me 
and we're fine. You know, I always knew that he respected my, what I did. And, and when he came back, remember when he, you know, because of what happened with the baseball about Baggett, Mike, he didn't talk to a lot of people one-on-one. He still granted me one-on-one interviews. And even when he went to Washington, they came here for their first game against the Bulls, uh, with Michael. And I went to the practice and I went to the PR. I said, can I get a one-on-one with Michael? And she goes, Oh, I don't think so. She went to Michael. Michael says, I will talk to her. Wow. That's great. Um, validation and just shows that your relationship over such a long period of time meant that much. He would certainly override not being able to chat to him. So that's, uh, that's great. What springs to mind again from that conversation that you ended up having with Jordan and, um, and just looking back on your time covering his career, um, so where does that stand? Let me tell you the conversation I had with him when we were in Boston when he came back. He kind of brought that back to me in 2003. He had his laptop open, and he looked at me, and he said, Cheryl, he says, you love what you do, don't you? I said, I absolutely do. And he says, if you ever stop, you have to quit. Wow. I looked at him, and I go, that's right. You did quit for you know 19 months. He relayed that again in 03, that he loved the game again, and he wanted to play still. That was really important to him, and I will never forget him telling me that. That was just quintessential Michael when he talked to me. There's so many different directions I'd love to head, but I know that time is <laughs> uh, of the essence, and I don't want to hold you any longer, so thank you so much. Um, one last thing I do love to ask uh, guests that appear on the show. Basketball Digest had a regular feature back in the day, which was called The Game I'll Never Forget basketball-wise. Is there a game from your career thus far that stands out the most? I think the first championship game against the, the Lakers, that, that when they won that last game, when Phil had to tell Michael, where's John Paxson? And that's when John Paxson lit it up, and that's when they won. And it was because Michael gave the ball to the right person at the right time. You, you can't forget that. Well said. And to earn the trust of Jordan, any teammate who's done that along the way, uh, obviously you can pay big dividends and of course to play collectively as a team that's the ultimate reward when they can capture their first championship at that stage in 1991. It was really magical and, and, and the first time for anything like that it's just the coolest. The, the funnier one was when they won game 69 with Dennis Rodman on the team. That's one of the most bizarre games because I go in the locker room afterwards and Dennis Rodman and I had a great rapport because my late sister was a tattooist and he got a kick out of that. I did actually read that that's Laura correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing that they can have that sort of link. <laughs> what happened with uh, with Dennis? <laughs> they win game 69. We're in Cleveland. Favorite place to be, of course. <laughs> We're in the visiting locker room. We go in there. His music is bizarre <laughs> and profane, and he's wearing the gimp mask from Pulp Fiction. <laughs> uh, as only Dennis Rodman probably could do at any time, no matter what year it was. Yes. Everyone was a little frightened to go up to him. I wasn't. <laughs> so I go up to him. He unzips the mask, takes it off, <laughs> turns off his music. He goes, what do you need, Cheryl? I said, well, I just want to talk to you about, you know, winning game 69 here. So we go back and forth. We talk, you know, about the game and blah, blah, blah. I finish. Nobody else asks a question. He puts the mask back on, <laughs> zips it up, turns up the music. <laughs> oh, that is unbelievable. I believe it, but it is unbelievable. <laughs> oh, man. What a character Dennis is. And I guess he seemed to sort of blossom when he was with the Bulls in terms of that side of his personality, whereas on the Pistons and, and a little bit with the Spurs, I guess, he started to get that way. But uh, an intriguing character all these years on, even to this day. He was at the United Center just a few weeks ago 
and he was very, very calm, very serene. I was like, wow, it wasn't the same guy. And, and the former police officer that was his security guard, George was with him. And the funniest story is when he was with the Bulls playing, George and, and Dennis liked to ride motorcycles or Harleys. And Phil Jackson said to George, because George told me this, he said, yeah, Phil told me that if Dennis gets into an accident in the hospital, that he will put him in the hospital next to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's always comforting to know that uh, Phil's going to uh, lay down some justice of his own if Dennis gets hurt. Yeah. I love that. That's so funny. Um, it's just been a pleasure to have a chance to chat with you, Cheryl. Um, thanks again for choosing to to talk about your years covering the bulls and decades really and to this day um i really appreciate it where can people sort of find your work online if they wanted to find out a bit more about you after today's chat you could google my name uh cheryl ray stout i also have a a page that i have on facebook i'm on twitter c ray stout um so you could contact me that way i've written some blogs so i have various ways to get you know find out about me Thanks again, and I hope at some stage in the future we can perhaps have, have another chat and uh, reminisce about some more Chicago sports. No problem, man. It was nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. I welcome your interaction with the show. You can suggest topics or guests you want to hear conversations with. Leave a voicemail. Simply visit inallairness.com slash voice. Click start recording, leave a message, and press stop. You can even listen back before submitting. Press send, and you're done. Worldwide, the show currently has 73 reviews, 70 on iTunes and 3 on Stitcher. Thanks for your continued support. If you add a review, I'd love to read it out on a future episode of the show. Your ratings and reviews are one of the best ways to support the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please do tell your basketball-loving friends about it. Your word-of-mouth recommendations are truly worth their weight in gold. You can stay up to date with my podcast and subscribe to my monthly email newsletter. You'll receive exclusive details on upcoming podcast episodes, future high-profile guests to appear on the show, and more. Simply visit inallairness.com slash news. You can subscribe to my show in various ways. Search for In All Airness, three words, on your podcast app of choice. The show can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.